0: Okay, welcome everybody, I think we'll get going. We're having a nice chat amongst ourselves, we might as well include all you while we're here. Uh, I'm Gus, one half of the What With The Smart Pie 2 podcast. And if you are in the right place, This is a seminar which will talk about how to get into RPG writing and maybe publishing something. So that's quite a massive topic. We could talk all day about it. So we're going to try and condense it to some top tips for you. Uh, We'll talk about our own personal experiences and what we know and what we bring to it. And then probably try and leave 10 minutes at the end if you want to throw some questions that we can maybe help you out. So, I'll just initially go through and introduce the panel. First of all, the other half of the What With the Smart Biology podcast is Mr. Bas Stevens.
1: Hello. Hiya. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming, everybody, to our now traditional dragon meat spot. We've been doing this for about five, six years, I think. At least. Something like that. We always bring along a couple of special guests as well so you don't just have to listen to us talk
2: but they weren't available
1: they weren't available so we had to get you instead (laughs) uh we are recording this so we'll probably get this out on the podcast in the next couple of weeks but you'll be part of that so uh keep it clean and uh we'll introduce our guests
0: absolutely so to my immediate right Matt Hart of Steamforge Games as I like to call you
2: absolutely do you want any more than that
0: Yes, tell us a bit about yourself. So I'm Matt, I'm
2: from Steamforge Games. Um, my day job I was just chatting with Paul about is the creative director, so I'm in charge of the overall direction of the products that we make. Um, if you've heard of us, we make uh, board games, role-playing games, miniatures games. The part of my job that I dislike is the, uh, I'm also one of the owners and therefore a director and have to do loads of boring stuff as well, but most of the time I get to indulge myself with, uh, with lots of toys and dice and whatnot.
0: And then we have a writer for a little-known game, Call of Cthulhu, and other things, and the upcoming Rivers of London, Paul Fricker.
3: Yes, I'm Paul Fricker. I'm one of the hosts of the Good Friends of Jackson Elias podcast, uh, where we talk about uh, Call of Cthulhu and horror-themed role-playing games. I'm a freelance writer for Call of Cthulhu and Rivers of London, and yes, that's me. Excellent stuff. So I think
0: probably to kick things off, one of the first things you need to know if you want to write, I think, is that you have to have an urge for it. You want to... If, you, if you're looking at this as a way to make millions, you might not do that, I'll warn you
1: now. So, perhaps, Baz, do you want to start off? What
0: gave you the urge to write and, and actually put something
1: out there? Well, it was a long time ago, and I think like probably a lot of people in the room, not judging anyone, but I'm thinking probably 80s, we got started in role-playing, and I'm one of those forever GMs, I guess. So, I was the person who was going to run it, I was the person who bought it, I was the person who was going to run it, whatever that game was. Uh, whether it be Traveller, RuneQuest, d d all of those old, old school games. And that meant that I would either go and spend my paper round pocket money on a module, and more likely I would confuse my relatives and say, could you get me one of these adventures? Uh, but I could never afford to do that, I could never get The Master of Nyarlathotep back in the day. I couldn't really afford to get Temple of Elemental Evil. So it was graph paper in the maths book. And then from graph paper in the mass book to writing down what was in those rooms and those corridors and coming up with plots and playing game after game after game, you realise you've got a pretty fat binder full of notes. And then you just imagine as a, as a young man as I did that one day you might go so far as to get something into White Dwarf. That would have been about the pinnacle. Um, and then flash forward a few years to where we are now in the 21st century and it turns out that we have at our fingertips the, the, the ability to publish stuff which we never had back in the day where it would have been manual typewriters and Tipex and set. So the idea of self-publishing became really a reality. And then, of course, companies got involved with that too. So the fact that it became easier to do as time has gone on has kind of spurred me to take my GM notes, like it does with a lot of us, and then see if I could give it to a stranger
3: and say, well, what do you want to
1: do with that?
3: Nice. yeah. Paul, how are you? I think, yeah, much similar story to Baz, really. But I think role-playing games, you know, even sort of from my first experience of it, it was something where I loved games as a, as a kid. I loved playing board games and card games. I'd always try and you know get my relatives or, or, or friends or whatever to, to play a game. Play a game. me. I, I think I was that kid that was forever bugging people to, to play a game. Uh, but it'd just be, you know, Monopoly and basic kind of board games and so on. And then I got introduced to, to D&D. But I think the thing that sets role-playing games apart to me is the creativity in them. So, you know, if you, play, if you play card games, poker or, you know, blackjack uh, or whatever, you don't sort of think, oh, I'm going to create an emperor card. We've got a king and a queen, I'm going to make an emperor. And we've got a, a 1 to 10, I'm going to make 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 cards. Yeah. You know, you, you just got your pack of cards. And most board games, you've got the board game pieces, you, you play with those. But with, with role-playing games, immediately, the first thing you usually do is create a character. I mean, I'm making something new that didn't exist before. And then as soon as you've done that, you're making up dialogue, you're creating stuff. As the GM, you're making scenarios. You're, you, know, you might be using, even if you're using bought stuff, immediately you've got to start creating dialogue for those NPCs they meet. And then they go into a house that isn't on your map or it's just like a little box on the map and you have to make something up. So constantly, it constantly demands people make stuff up. And I think people who like that are drawn to that and you see other people publishing stuff and for whatever reasons, and I think this is an interesting thing to consider, you or we all decide that, actually we like making this stuff up and we want to polish it up and put it out. If I may, I'd like to ask the audience, how many of you have got something you've written in a role playing game product of some sort could you raise your hands yeah so there's 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 about six people that have already
2: got stuff out there but how how many of how many of you have got a house rule in a game that you've that you play in right a lot more hands yeah Yeah. right
3: sorry As long as it's not called Cthulhu, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But how many of you would like to have uh, something you've written in a role-playing game product that's published? Okay. About the
0: same. same.
3: Why are the rest of you here? (laughs) (laughs) Just to see our gorgeous faces. Nice sit down.
0: Uh, How about you, Matt? What's your urge for creativity? Where's that coming from? I
2: think... um, I think mine comes with uh, a healthy dose of, of, of arrogance, if I'm honest with you. Is, uh, it's not like you. I would, yeah, no, right? I would, um, I would always buy stuff and read it and think, oh, that's really cool, and then but I would have done it differently. And then, uh, I'd, and then these are usually sort of systems or mechanics. But then I would buy, you know, um, like an adventure module. And, you know, as, as Paul was saying, is the, the second you buy it, you've now got to start thinking about how does this actually work with my group? How does this work with the current situation? And generally, you know, a pre-run adventure just veers off the rails very quickly if you're not careful and if you're not prepared. And, and so you find yourself hacking these things together. So I think my natural um, inclination towards hacking to improve things um, is what started me just writing my own stuff until my hubris reached a certain level I thought, I'm just going to start a company. Yeah. It's yeah. working it. out all right. Awesome. No <laughs> one will publish me. I'll publish myself. That's, <laughs> <right>. That's <laughs> the way to do
0: it, absolutely. So, yeah, myself, I've been jamming for probably 40 years now or more. I started really young then. Yeah, that's (laughs) right. Half my life away. (laughs) I think the thing about it is, is it's quite tough to write stuff. So I've always liked, I jam loads at conventions and things like that. And I can write bullet point notes and have lots of creative ideas. But how do you transform that into giving it to somebody else? Mm. Uh, and, And I feel like a lot of people after conventions might come and say, oh, that was a great scenario can you give me your notes? So and I'm like, I can, but they're on the back of this beer mat. I know it lasted four hours, but there's not a lot written down. So getting the stuff out there to communicate to other people and getting a little bit of a reward from it is kind of where I've got to now. Where I, I can, People have asked for games, so I want to share them, but the writing bit's quite hard and the only way to do it is to do it. So you have, to, mm. you have to write. So probably another aspect to talk about if people are going to write things for other people is level of detail and how much we put in there. What, what thoughts have you
1: got on that, Baz? So um, so I have, I have it the other way around. So I'm one of those people that struggle with ideas. So a blank sheet of paper is terrifying to me, absolutely terrifying. I just don't know what to do with it. But if you gave me, as you have done in the past, if you give me your six bullet points, I can turn that into a 64 page module quite happily. Mm-hmm. So I fancy just uh, doing loads and loads and loads of words. And I love riffing off of existing ideas. So that does get you into the territory of how much is too much, how much is not enough, and there's a level of tolerance depending on game system and the audience that you have for your stuff. So being brought up on White Dwarf, as I think many of us were, I was used to seeing scenarios laid out in White Dwarf, and they would only be maybe a big scenario in White Dwarf, might be four or five pages in tiny, tiny letters. If you ever go back and look at a White Dwarf, it's like size four font. It's ridiculous. But I would t- take that and think, well, okay, so that's an amateur publication. So obviously, if I'm going to write an adventure, it needs to be way bigger than that. And then you look at publishers who, to this day, if you see adventures at all, they tend to be quite chunky things outside of OSR D&D. Hardback, hardback adventures. You go and look at you know what, what the guys are doing with the new Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, where you've got like a 10 volume set for something that wasn't that big when I was starting. So I get where that comes from because I can't stop writing detail. And I don't know where to stop. But my issue is, is in those initial ideas. So I find that quite fascinating, that, that people like yourself guys, happy to do the ideas, and then you soon tire of that and you want to move on to a new thing. Whereas I want to get hold of an idea and you can't stop me writing. And I don't know if that's a genetic thing or preference or what. So I'd be interested to in hear what the other guys have about, about from ideas to development. Mike, Two You're, you're an
0: ideas why aren't you? And also a bit of a developer, a designer. How would you pigeonhole yeah.
1: yourself if you can?
2: Uh, yeah, I I really enjoy the beginning bit and the end bit of making a product. the the, the hard work in the middle. I don't, don't like hard it work. At all. No, so I, I I really find it quite easy to come up with a lot of ideas for you know for situations, scenarios, stories, game ideas. But then I really struggle to to kind of get it out of my brain because I tend to think about things in in shapes is the way, best way of describing it. And just things mull around and then they start locking together. I can't tell you in words what it should be. Fortunately, I've got plenty of awesome people in the uh, in the design and development team, and they can understand my my ramblings and and then they put it in. And then and then once it's down on paper, then the other part that I'm pretty decent at. So I'm, I guess I'm a good editor. So I'm able to kind of look at what people have done mm. and help kind of polish it and enhance it. And I think hopefully that'll be a topic of conversation we'll get onto at some point in time, which is talking about the difference between what you write for your, for your own game and, and what you need to write to kind of give to someone for them to be able to understand what you're trying to do. But also do it in a succinct a fashion that, that it's actually really like a pre-written adventure should be um, a shorthand. You should be helping GMs to, to, to run a game. And sometimes when you buy these pre-written adventures, it's almost like it's twice as much work to try and understand what's going on as it would be to write your own stuff. So, um, so there's I think editing is a really important part of the process but also you know just the sheer volume of words that goes in. So do you want to sort of pick that up what's what's the right level of detail to put in the scenario then have you?
3: Yeah I mean I addressed this in the in the um, Call of Cthulhu 7th edition sort of advice on using published material so kind of I think like you just said Gaz when you run a scenario you've got a bunch of bullet points when you're running your own thing you've got a bunch of bullet points and you know what that bullet? If you just gave those bullet points to me, I might look at them and think, well, all he's put is room, three goblin—I don't know—three goblins and chest. And I'm like, but to you, those things, you might have a whole picture in your head, and that's just keywords that, that trigger off this whole thing that you've created. Now, I think when you're writing the scenario, for someone you don't know, for someone that can't come to you and say, well, "What do you mean about by that, Gaz?" all they've got is what you've written on the page. So you've got to kind of paint a picture for them. So if it's, if it's a, you know, somebody in a, an old fashioned house, a kind of gothic house and there's a desk and you're describing, you know, maybe you sort of just give a bit of flavor, you know, there's some dusty old curtains, dusty implies that it hasn't been used very much and it's a bit outdated. There's a desk with like a leather top and a journal. And, and, and you start sort of giving some details. When I come to run it as a player, as a, as a GM, I've read that, I've got that, I've, that information is now in my head. All I need to do, me, Paul, all I need to do is put down, what, would I, what I might call it, a uh, drawing room, and then I might put, if, if the thing that they might find is a book with sort of information in it, yeah, book uh, handout. And then, you know, where that book is, you know, the text might say it's hidden in the bottom left drawer of the desk in a in a in a hidden compartment. I might that you know to me that might not be too important. I might decide it's on a shelf in the behind some other books, or there's a swing round like library thing. You know, where, where the, there's a concealed room, so I can elaborate on that. But because I've read that detail, I've got a flavour of it now. I know what it means, and I know what. My, so it goes from your key, your your bullet point. Then you write it up as a full-blown text. Then I buy it, I read it, and I then take that and I make my own bullet points. And now I'm running my game with my own bullet points. That, that's how I understand it, that's how, that's what works for me. So it's, it's sort of like, you know, it takes that arc to me and I'm, I'm, now I can run it. But I've kind of got to read all that stuff, not, not copious detail, but enough to get the ideas across but if you if you were writing
2: something to publish Mm. taking your example of the book is in the third drawer on the left would you actually write that specifically or would you say in this room there is a book and then leave it to the gm because a lot of the times when i'm running a game you know a player might come up with a cool idea oh if i pull this statue maybe there's a fake thing i'm like oh yeah that's a good idea all right yeah that's where the book is do you know what i mean i would i would
3: say um you know because i know people will read it and then they'll come to me and say well where is the book Where's right. it hidden? And I'm like, well, I yeah, you could not put that information in, yeah. But then if you if you extend that thought, you could just say, There's a house. You could just say <laughs> you could just say, Is here's, here's a blank sheet of paper, make your own scenario. Right. If you're creative, why do you need that anyway? So I think I think yeah, you do I would say there's the draw, but I'd also sort of say, you know, maybe in a box text. If you want to juggle these things around a bit and put it somewhere else, that's fine. Do that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I I brought um, a DM's Guild adventure, which Bryce Lynch reviewed and says great detail, loved it all. But then when I read it, when I actually tried to run it, I couldn't find what I wanted because of the wall of text almost. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's not quite a wall of text. So I'm writing another thing now, and what I've done is the same style of. The cool evocative detail with specificity, which people like. And then at the bottom of each bit, just got like some bullet points to say, mm-hmm. you know, one bit's for when people read your scenario, and then the other bit's for when they're running your scenario together. It's mnemonic, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But they might want to make their own bullet points, that kind of thing. So, so, how about you, Bess? How do you think you get to the essence of writing for someone else with giving them enough that they're interested in? Do you have to have a lot because people just read scenarios for reading, or do you want to make it playable at the
1: table, or how mm-hmm. do you balance the two? So there's, that's the challenge, isn't it? That's the balance. Too much, not enough, finding that Goldilocks zone of what works. I think you're trying to do, when you're writing a, a, a scenario for publication, it's a very tricky challenge because you've got multiple audiences and multiple pulls on you as an author. You definitely need to write something that's interesting. And that maybe doesn't need saying, but looking at some publishing ventures, I think perhaps it does need saying. Because your first job as a writer is to get a potential GM to read your adventure and go, I want to play this because then that stranger is going to go and pitch it to some players that you don't know either. So if you can't interest a potential GM, you've got no chance. So it has to be evocative and you have to use your skills as a fiction writer, as to be an engaging writer, to really grab someone. But then at a certain stage, you've also got to make it a usable technical manual that can be opened up at your table or in front of your computer where that potential GM who got all excited with your lovely use of adjectives now wants to know which drawer that clue is in. <laughs> and they need to be able to do it almost like that. So you've got to start thinking as a technical writer as well as an evocative writer. And you've got to think about layout and about whether the clue is actually three pages in. Is it going to go into a sidebar? Is it going to go into some kind of table? So you've got an awful lot of things that's being asked of you as a writer. And when you're sitting down as as an amateur in front of your mates who come round every Friday night, you don't have to address any of those things at all. You just have to put on a bit of a show. And that's why it's a challenge. I think writing for multiple audiences is why I think we probably, all of us, would struggle to think of our top five published scenarios. Because it's difficult. It's really difficult. And I don't claim to be an expert in it at all. But I am an angry consumer. Of published <laughs> scenarios where I, I think this was great but it didn't work at the table because of this or this one really worked at the table I didn't think anything was going to happen because it was a fairly dull read but I just grabbed it in a moment mm. so I don't think I know the answers but I do know that I think you have to write with multiple different lenses across your work and that's where collaboration I think might actually be the key yeah definitely get more sets of eyes on your
2: work and play testing yeah yeah I pick up a load of modules, I read a lot of content, and then you try and run it, and it almost falls over like at the first contact with the players, and you think, is this, has this been play-tested? Is, like, did anyone real actually try and run this? And so I do think, yeah, multiple pairs of eyes, not only in terms of the text and how you're presenting that information, so you want feedback from GMs, but also from a player's perspective. Because I think that the thing that's most terrifying, if you're GMing and running a module, is we can all like we can all sense when players have kind of not got what's going on and now you're sitting there going, how do I pass through all of this to work out the thing that I need to give you that's going to get you ticking and back on on track? And it kind of ties in a lot for me. Um, You know, if you're putting, let's call them clues, right? So so a role-playing game is all a series of find a thing that leads to a thing that leads to a thing that leads to a thing. It's kind of, if you want to be really reductive, but, but there's so many modules out there that you buy or, or you, you read, and you you get to like the fifth chapter, and the players are at the fifth chapter, and it's because, of course, at this point the players will have the key of Antioch, and you're like, what, mm-hmm. you know? And then you're like flicking back through the book, and you go, oh God, it's in chapter one. I was supposed to find <laughs> it in that like really obscure. Ah, now what do I do? So, being clear about those kind of clue chains, I think, is really important as well. So, all of that stuff comes out from playtesting. So, I think if you are going to make content that you have an intention to 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 publish you've at the very least need to have played it with your group but then i think as an absolute minimum to create a good product is you need to have given it to someone else who you then sit there and keep your mouth shut while they're playing yeah and you just watch what they're doing watch how they run it and get feedback from them and the players and i think that would elevate any product you make above 80 of the stuff that's out there right now because i think a huge proportion of stuff that's out there is just not play tested at all. It's just people writing and then just hit and send too quickly.
3: Yeah, I think you've got a duty to almost as as the text should almost spoon feed you the GM the stuff that that's going on there. I don't want to read a scenario and feel like I'm an investigator, a player character investigator, <coughs> reading a kind of like a find your own adventure book. Hmm. And like I've read I've read like a couple of pages, and I'm like. Well, I don't actually know what's going on. It, it, they haven't actually said what the answer to this question they're posing is. I don't want to. I don't want to have to work this out myself. I, I want it just to tell me this isn't the game. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, how long? You, you wrote your D&D scenario, The Bone Alchemist. Have I got the title right, guys? Yes. yes. Yeah, well uh, done. Uh, uh, is that on DM's Guild? It is. Is it a good price? Do I like, <laughs> <laughs> cheap at twice the price? But how long how long would you say it took you to write it? I mean, I know that's how long it's been be stringed, but it's hard to say. Isn't it? Yeah, For a m- long time. Many right? hours.
0: Probably more hours went into production than actually writing the content
3: of yeah. it. Yeah. And, and how long would you spend, if that wasn't your own scenario and you'd bought it, how long would you expect to spend prepping that before you, you know, a scenario of that size?
0: Hmm. I generally don't want to spend more time prepping than I'm going to spend at the table as a, yeah. as a very good lease. You know, rule of thumb if I'm running a two hour game, I we'll have to read for four hours and, and work things out. That's too much time invested. It's too much time, isn't yeah. it? So
3: it's, it's really behoves us as, as, as authors to like try and whatever detail, whatever stuff we're putting in, it's, you've kind of got to find a way of expressing it on the page that gets it across to people as, as, as swiftly and economically as possible, really. And that's not to dumb it down, it's just to try and, you know, strive to. So as, as you read back through the through your own writing, if there's anything you feel isn't quite clear, you know, restructure sentences to make them just communicate better, and you know, think about the the format and the order you're putting things in. It's always a conundrum. You know, you've got like you've got an NPC and they've got stats. They're gonna have stats because it's a role-playing game. Do you put those at the end of the scenario? Do you know, so they're all in one place? Do you put them up? front with a sort of dramatic persona of of the characters and thing. do you put them in the first place they turn up because if they're going to turn up in the first scene but then in the in the last scene as well in several scenes well they got to keep turning back so it's like it's always a it's always a thing to juggle but you just have to figure out what is best for your game of where to put those things that's that's going to be easy to use for the you know for the gm i think
0: Yeah. So there's not just writing as well when you're assembling stuff, things like Clue Trends, you can have like node maps of where clues Mm -hmm. lead. Mm -hmm. You can have infographics, you can have stuff like that. So we probably need to get into the realms of talking about how you actually present something, how you publish something. So as you wrote The King of Dungeons, uh, and you have to have is available on drive Is it? Oh, is okay. it a good price as well? It's an excellent, excellent price, price. Yeah. yeah. Excellent stuff. So that, that involves <laughs> perhaps sourcing art, learning how to lay out for the first time, yeah. all those sort of things. Do you want to take us through a quick whistle-stop tour of that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, so at a certain point in my writing process, which isn't necessarily the same as anyone else's writing process, it moves from being a random scenes on Google Docs, which I've probably put into my phone um, at various points while I'm queuing up for a coffee or something, That then turns into a Word document where it gets fleshed out and made real. And then at a certain stage in the process, it starts moving into very early layout decisions. So what's this going to look like on a page? And more importantly, what's it going to look like on a double page spread? Because if you're doing a scenario, my feeling is I want the GM to do as little page turning during an encounter or a scene as possible. Which is why, for example, I make the decision to not put in PC stats at the end, which I know a lot of publishers do. But for me, you need to have the information you need in the book, um, on the page in front of you. Now, that layout decision, that again calls on a whole new set of skills. So I've already talked about you've got to write like Stephen King. You've also got to be able to do a technical manual like whoever's good at those. Uh, Delia Smith is quite good at technical manuals. You know. Tell you wife. She <laughs> you can go on by following her instructions. But you've also got to look at the layout because. That will then adjust my writing. So I will then try and be economic, and I know we've had a discussion with Paul before where he says at the end of a good writing day you can sometimes have fewer words at the end than you had at the start, Mm. because you can find that your map that you've used, if it's a really nice map and it's labelled kitchen, all of a sudden you don't have to put in the text. You enter a kitchen, it's full of pots and pans and you can cook things in it, and it's 20 feet across this way and 40 feet up that way, because that's all described in the picture and by the title of the room. So you can start to be a bit more economical, but the the amount of stuff that you then have to start cutting back on your work or you make that decision, am I going to go for a second page spread? Is this in, Is this scene, is this encounter, is it blooming into something bigger? So then you push on and you can't just do an extra hundred words, you've got to do an extra thousand. And those kind of self-edits happen quite a lot. So my writing process is to blurt it all out and then become my own editor and then start putting some layout decisions on top of that and you get to your stage, which is you spend more time fiddling with it than you did actually creating it. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. You find weird things like two, two sentences might go off and you think, okay, well, I've got a page and two sentences need to come out. Yeah. And that, that's just an odd thing to do sometimes. Orphans and widows, man. Oh. Or you stick a picture in and go and go right on the page yeah. <laughs> to yeah. fill it all out. So exactly. That's interesting. You've done Epic Encounters, which yes. is the second approach. How, how does that work for you?
2: So Epic Encounters, um, really what we wanted to incorporate with that is a lot of the lessons we've learned through writing board game manuals. So a board game manual is is a different type of writing from an RPG. And I feel that it gets information across a lot more succinctly and a lot a lot more easily. but there's an awful lot of graphic design planning, so, so if, if you're Baz and you've got your words, that's great, but then you need almost like a storyboard of the pages that you wanna put out. So, for example, in, in Epic Encounters, we knew that what we wanted to do is give the GM the ability to run a scripted boss fight, and we knew that was gonna be a double page spread, because we don't want people flipping backwards and forwards, but how's that gonna look? Is it gonna be a flow chart? Is it gonna be some kind of like snake diagram? Is it, you know, how, how do we wanna present it? And then that starts leading into essentially word budgets and things like that. So one of the hardest things that I find is, um, is when you've actually done all that graphic design, you've got your page layout done, you've got your words into it, you then need to go through and do uh, some very intricate writing, which is you're actually writing for typographical layout reasons. So if you put a paragraph in and you end up with a widow, so a widow is a single word that's on a new line, well, that really looks quite, quite messy on, on a page. So you either want to shorten the previous sentence or, or somewhere above to kind of hoover the, the widow up or give the widow friends and, and write a few more words. And ideally, every paragraph will be justified and, and relatively uniform at, on the layout on the page. And then, then at that point, you're thinking about, you know, the, like the leading between, between the lines, you know, the kerning between the letters and all that kind of stuff really then factors in. So there's quite a lot of technical writing that you actually have to do when you think you're done with the writing.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. How, how about you, because if I may say so, I think colicothelial scenarios are things tend to be wordy. They're quite yeah, often about longer description.
3: Longer, yeah. Perhaps than a standard uh, fantasy adventure, perhaps, because there's that whole sort of mystery story kind of going on in them. So, you know, a standard scenario scenarios, perhaps between a short ones, perhaps seven or eight thousand words up to you know 16, thousand something like that yeah
0: and what about because for example Lovecraft was quite florid in some of his descriptions what do you think about word choice and in terms of a balance between being terse and getting an idea across but also being interesting to people to read
3: well I think like Matt said you've got to you've got to make it you've got to strive to make it come alive on the page and excite people's interest so you know it's, it's just a case of reading you know a couple of paragraphs and you get the sense that you're excited about it, and you, oh yeah, I want to run that. Or if it's just a bit, or if it describes the same thing but in a in a dull, lifeless way, well, it doesn't. It just doesn't grab your attention. So, I think word choice is, is very much down to the individual author. I don't. You haven't got to use like Lovecraft vocabulary by any means. So I think just try and make it interesting. But I think I would go back to the thing of um, what you said about who you're writing for. I think when I started. I started by writing scenarios for myself, obviously. But then I started, I got into a little group that was running games at conventions, and I would, we would write games, and the thing was, our little convention, our little way we did it was, you'd run your own scenario, and you'd run one of the other people's scenarios in the group. And that meant that, you know, I was having to write a scenario that somebody else could run, but they could come to me and talk to me about it. And that's like, the first layer of the onion, really, is writing for yourself. but The second layer is writing for somebody else. You know, if I wrote a scenario and, and Gaz going to run it, well, I can write it and he can say, well, I don't understand this bit, you know, and we can, we can talk it over. But if I'm writing it for somebody I don't know, that's like a whole other kettle of fish, really. That's, that's a whole other thing, because you've got to put so much more into it. And that's, that's if you're going to write a scenario and give it to a publisher, that's as far as you need to go. Because they'll, they'll do the editing, they'll do the art, they'll do the layout, they'll pay you probably you know, cents per word, you know, X cents per word, and that's the last you'll input you'll have on it until it comes out in whatever format. And that's how, you know, that's how I started. When it came to actually publishing, going all the way through to publishing my own work in um, PDF online, you know, that involves some more steps that, that Matt's just been talking about, about like maybe getting somebody else to do the layout, not doing it myself. And then if you want to go through that process all the way to having it, not just as, as a PDF online, but as print on demand online, yeah. that's a whole nother level of, of stuff that I haven't even like figured was a thing. So many more. And there's one step beyond that as well, which there is, is. Yeah, yeah, POD layout
2: doesn't then translate into a f- proper. Yeah, full print. I've not been that far yet. Right. but Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: So there's all sorts of levels. But your first level, if you want to write something, if you write it out, it could go on a blog, or it could go to you know community content uh, like uh, chaosium has got misclinic repository, Free League have got one, D and D Beyond, is it D and D Beyond? DM's Guild. DM's, DM's Guild. Yeah. DM's Guild. DM's yeah. um, Guild. And, and there the, are the, the various things where you can get your stuff onto those. Mostly on Drive Through and you know, it's out there in the world for And then the real world begins. <laughs> yeah, relatively, <laughs> but relatively low barrier to entry. And,
0: and they're really good places to start because quite often the companies will give you a style guide. So they'll tell you how to write and what sort of things to put in and not put in. You can quite often get Word doc templates or things for like Affinity. If you've not done any publishing before or layout, uh, Affinity is a good price, about 25 quid, something like that, and there's some good guides out there. Um, so you can get quite a lot of the tools for actually putting
2: something together think being strategic about and realistic with you with yourself about why are you writing is is what what do you want to get out of it do you just want to put your content out there and, and and let people pick it up great if you want to do it to build a portfolio that you can then go and speak to an existing company and do some freelance work for you probably need to you know start thinking sp- more specifically about the types of scenarios you want to be able to in your portfolio you know and if you're going to look to maybe take it to creating your own company or your own you know uh, publishing house then then there's a different set of things I think you need to practice so being a bit more specific or realistic with yourself about why you're putting this content out and what you hope to achieve from it because you know as, as Paul said once it's out there it's, it's kind of like in many ways that's sort of where the real work begins because just putting something on DMs Guild doesn't, you're not going to instantly become a platinum seller you know you've got to get the word out it's marketing, is getting your social networks working and everything like that, if that's what you want to do, you're not going to be driving a Lambo off of one, one module. I've discovered that to my regret. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. Yeah,
0: I, I might have got to tank a tank of fuel out of it. I think yeah. that's as, as good <laughs> no, as it can. Okay. So a step beyond perhaps community content is to look at sort of like Kickstarter. So you went on that journey, Baz. Yep. You know, we can't cover the whole of Kickstarter in, in five minutes, but do you mm, want to give us a, uh, not a taste?
1: Sure. And, and Kickstarter is a constantly evolving beast anyway, and things have changed since I did mine a couple of years ago. But Kickstarter is, is just a must. It's just a must. Gaz talked me out of releasing my work straight onto Drive-Thru and just hoping that people would find it. Um, because that yeah. seems like, you know, if you're a little bit shy, as I am, about some sort of things, you think, oh, I'll just push it out there and maybe people will like it. And then word of mouth, if I'm lucky, you know, people might pass it around at gaming conventions. And then, you know, one day maybe I'll hear about someone in Japan playing my game and that would be nice. And Guy said, no, what you want to do, mate, is try this thing called Kickstarter. And you're right, because Kickstarter is there to get projects going, but it's also, let's face it, it's just a massive promo tool. It is fantastic at generating buzz, generating a community, getting some some actual pledges down before before you commit to, to getting into the world of print and POD and PDFs and everything else like that. However... However, Kickstarter can also be the bane of your existence. So, if you take nothing else from this, from my advice today, it's if you're gonna write, get the writing done before you do your Kickstarter. Do not launch a Kickstarter, have 600 people give you money, and then start writing the thing and delivering on your promise to them. You will not do it. They will be angry. There will be lawsuits. You will starve. These are not good things. Get your stuff written first put in the hard work and then go to Kickstarter with a product that's nearly there or thereabouts if it has to be, if you want to use Kickstarter to put art into your work, if you want to use Kickstarter to get professional editing, that's great, but do not take the money and then think, if only I had £10,000 in my bank account, I would then be able to write my work. It's just a fool's game. So don't do that. So I didn't do that. So, um, So my stuff was ready to rock the moment I launched my Kickstarter, and it was fulfilled immediately afterwards.
2: Go on, Matt. One step further than that, though, having all your content written, brilliant, right? And and I think your advice is sound, that don't go to Kickstarter until all your content's written, but do not ever go to Kickstarter without a proper business case, and a proper project plan, and some quotes on on stuff what you need to outsource, because you will get tripped up and then whatever your business case says, add 30% to it, so you've got a contingency fund. And at that point, you've got an understanding of what your funding total needs to be, mm-hmm. and you're not going to get caught with your trousers down. Because time and time again, because we, we conduct quite a bit of business on Kickstarter, and, and so we're, as Baz says, it's an ever-evolving platform, we're, so we are students of, of that as, a, as a, an important funding platform for us but it is a really much more important PR platform. Mm-hmm. But the amount of times you see sort of smaller indie projects on there, you think, oh, that's such a cool, you know, product, and then you look at it and you're like, oh, you're in trouble. And the, you know, and these and they just disappear below the waves and, and never see the light of day. And it's someone's, you know, hard work and, and, and creative energy that's gone into it. And, you know, so, You've got to cost it out. And again, you've got to be ruthlessly realistic with yourselves. You've got to do a business case to say, have I covered, you know, I need it to be laid out. I need it to be DTP. I need it to, you know, I need art. How much does art cost me? Have I got artists actually lined up taxes, all of that stuff? Yeah. Taxes, you know, it's just Kickstarter taking 9%, you know, Mm. you've got to factor that all in. So you then can set yourself a realistic funding total. That's so yeah adding to what you're saying, Baz, yeah, Yeah, yeah. the writing is the easy bit. The writing
1: is the easy bit. Don't let any of that put you off. If you have written something and you want to get it published, Kickstarter is is so important for that, just Mm. because it will give you a little bit of a guarantee, it will just add a little bit of cachet. it will give you something to talk about on social media, it will give you you somewhere to lead to, and you can start to build a community, and secretly you can also start to build a bit of a playtest community, because I'm sure everyone in this room has backed Kickstarter at one time or another. You become a little bit of a shareholder in that project and then you become a bit of a fan of that project because you've invested some of your money and you are quite happy then to go back to that author and say, I don't know if you noticed, but you dropped a semicolon when it probably should have been one and you're kind of getting free editing advice. Sometimes it's unwanted editing and it's advice like, and yes. you're helping, And you're <laughs> but you have got a legion of people who have mm. investment in you releasing a great product into the wild and I found it incredibly helpful. I got so much assistance from people who had basically paid me money to help me, which seems like a weird upside-down world to live in, but it was a great world to exist in. Absolutely. So
0: you've written for Chaosium. How would you say writing something for a publisher is different than writing for yourself?
3: Well, I think there's that of you write it, and then, as I said, the, the company takes that writing from you, and they'll they'll do with it as they wish. Really, they'll they'll edit it, and, and sometimes editing can mean they almost rewrite it, depending on on what you've given them and what they want to do with it and how they want to integrate it with a you know a project they're doing. So once once they if it's work for hire, which means you write it, they pay you. It's not yours anymore. It's theirs. They can do what they want with it. How so, careful are you about looking at your
2: contract? Because there's, um, wasn't there that recent story about a fairly big publisher taking someone's work, putting their name against it, but the way that they had edited it was really,
3: it didn't land very well. Right. I mean, I've got a relationship with the Chaosium that I, I kind of have a, a, a trusting relationship with them, I suppose. You know, I've, I've been working with them for quite a long time. So that's, I guess that's not such a big concern for me. And I tend to see the the proofs before they go out, mm. but yeah, that, I mean that could, I can definitely see how that could happen. Mm. You know, somebody if I, if I was the publisher, I could get your writing in, I could rewrite it in a way that would really, you know, be against your ethos, and put it out with your name on it. I yeah. mean, that, that that's possible. Yeah. You know, all things are possible. I think you know, in terms of that, it's it's like I'm just I'm just cog in the just a, a wheel in, in the big machine in that way. Whereas if you're putting your own stuff out, you're a much bigger part of the machine. Like you're kind of you guys doing Kickstarter, you, you're taking it from inception to to realization. I think as a, I, mean it, I don't know about people in the audience, but that to me, all of that, even you know having written some stuff and done some stuff myself, some of that sounds a bit intimidating. Uh, you know, having to know about taxes and uh, you know all those things that sound a bit you know financially worrying. And, and also, things that I don't really know anything about, that's, that's a bit, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot to take on. So, I think one of the things you have to realise is what your own strengths and weaknesses are. And, you know, when it came to 7th edition Call of Cthulhu, I'm probably, if Mike hadn't pushed us to actually get on and finish it, I'd still be tinkering with it now because I'm a tinkerer. You know, I, I just keep fiddling with things. And I've kind of trained myself to get through to yeah, actually publishing a scenario. But I do fiddle about with it for bloody ages before I actually sort of decide that it's like done and dusted. So how people like do it for a living and just write and produce enough stuff to make a living out of it, I, I don't really know. I don't make a living out of it. It's a part-time thing for me because I'm not prolific enough to 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 do that really, you know. And I think, yeah. It, you have to realise what your strengths and weaknesses are, and find people to work with. Perhaps find somebody if you've got a friend who's into layout. If you've got a friend who's a good editor, and when I say a friend, I don't mean you're going to get them to do work for nothing. If you're putting stuff up on Drive Through, it's built in that you can share royalties. So you could share royalties with them. You can, um, you know, or you can pay them a, a flat fee. Um, but be aware that if you're putting stuff up on drive through, we looked up the stats the other night. It, what's the percentage of people that hit copper and above, which is 50 sales and above?
0: Yeah, so there's about 110,000 products, and 14% make copper. And above? Well, actually, no, it's about the same for silver, and then it dramatically drops off to like 3% gold or something. So it's probably about a third of products get copper above, maybe. Yeah.
3: So chances are you're gonna sell less than 50.
0: But don't be discouraged by that for no. your, first, your first try, I would say, like, you know, to do it, do it, start writing and put things out there and that, that's where you'll get going, just manage your own expectations, I think.
3: Well, I think the thing is, you're gonna get people say, I played your scenario, it was great. And it depends, if you're doing it for them, like, like you say, you gotta sort of think what you're doing it for. And if you're doing it just because I love, I love the hobby and you wanna share in it and you wanna, have just maybe as something as basic as you want something out there with your name on it, because that's a nice feeling, fine, but that's different to saying I want to make a living out of it, I want to you know, mm-hmm. make enough money to keep a roof over my head, that's a very different aspiration. Yeah,
0: how, how do you make a small fortune in role-playing? You start with a large fortune. <laughs> so, uh, just conscious of time, we've probably got a little bit of time, if you want to break from us, to ask some questions. So has anybody got anything they want to ask about? Otherwise you'll get more of us. Yes, I'll just in the front. Okay, so for the sake of the recording, the question is: How do you approach things that might happen that uh, you haven't written about potentially, or that uh, people go off the beaten path, or think of other things? Like, how much, I guess, pilots, how much preparation or caveating do you put in your writing to, to proof against that? Anybody got thoughts?
1: My sense is that there seems to be a perception that railroading, a railroaded adventure is a bad thing. And I'm I'm not sure that I necessarily agree, I think by its very nature, if you're going to give an adventure to somebody else, a scenario, there has to be an element of A to B to C. Well, it certainly has to be an A and it has to be an F or whatever it is you're going to finish. The route to the end could be circuitous, Um, it could be everything from a fighting fantasy novel with 500 paragraphs to a you are literally on a train and you're going down this track and you're going to arrive at the station no matter what you do. I think by their very nature, published scenarios are probably slightly more railroady than the home experience can be. And I think that's fine because you know that going in, you're buying an adventure because you don't have the time or you don't have the inclination to do your own stuff. You don't want to create or maybe just looking for an example of what an adventure could look like. But you are a consumer that is going to buy something off the shelf, a canned product. And from that perspective, you know, it's not going to be necessarily what you would have cooked yourself at home. And it's okay. So I think, I think there's, an illu- there's an illusory game that you want to play as an author and definitely as a GM, where you may be giving more illusion of choice than actually there may or may not be. Uh, and it may be that sometimes that's blatant, like it doesn't matter which corridor out of the three you go down, you're going to arrive in the same room. But as a player, you often don't know that. From the player's perspective, it always looks like a railroad. In hindsight, 100%. it always looks like a, a trail of breadcrumbs where there was only one solution. So I think it's okay to not sweat that too much, because unless you want your fairly simple dungeon crawl to be four hundred pages long, you cannot put in every eventuality.
2: I think to, to address the question specifically, how much should you write in the scenario? I think I will build on what Baz is saying: is, is I wouldn't try and count for every c- circumstance that could happen, because I think what you'll end up doing is obfuscating the story that you, you know the scenario you are writing. So. Perhaps this is something that will come out of playtesting is be aware of where deviations from the main path might happen. Use things like uh, the three clue rule that Justin Alexander talks about in his blog quite a lot. You know, so when you're writing stuff, make sure there's enough opportunities that you're giving the GM to pull the story back online, but in an organic fashion that feels like it's player agency that's done that rather than you kind of savagely taking the wheel and pulling people back on track, but I, I wouldn't try and write the players might do this, or they might do this, or they might do this, or they might do this, because I think you, you're then going to, you know, you're going to bury the lead in the copy at that point.
0: Absolutely. Let's try and get another question in. Third row, long hair. Sure. So the, the question is around what's, what's the difference or what do we feel about the difference between the sandboxy time setup with people, events, locations, and something more linear?
3: Yeah. So uh, working on um, the campaign, the two-headed serpent for Call of Cthulhu, it's, you know, it's, it's a sequence of chapters, a world-spanning uh, pop Cthulhu campaign. And the traditional thing is, you know, you'll say, well, in Chapter 3, the, the baddie that you met in Chapter 1, you know, crops up and they do this, this and this. Well, what if the players killed that baddie in Chapter 1? <laughs> are we going to say they can't kill them? So, you know, as we did that, it, it was, we sort of felt like we want to make sure that there are options. So we sort of said, in box tags. If they kill, if this guy's dead, you know, use this other person. Or if that one's already been taken out, if they've not found this item, then you know, this is what will happen. So you kind of create more of a, more optionality into it, so it's not as railroaded. It's perhaps not pure sandbox, because I think a sandbox campaign you can do, but it's hard to publish. You know, most campaigns have a, have a story sort of running through them, uh, because like you were saying, you wanna you wanna as you read the thing, you wanna get as a as a reader, you wanna get a sense of the sort of narrative flow of it so you can so it, it may not play that way at your table, but at least you've got a good feeling for you know what the, the story of the campaign might be.
0: I, I think the secret to sandboxy type stuff when you've got characters or whatever is give the NPCs a motivation. Like what are they gonna do if the players do nothing? Mm-hmm. And that's all you should really need to, to to get your scenario going, like give them a really clear goal. And then throw the players at it and then whoever's picking up the scenario knows well this guy wants to take over this pub and if my players are swanning around doing something else then this pub's going to start burning down or things of that nature like have instigating events that are going to occur if you you want to
2: safeguard yourself even more like give him a front so it's it's not just one npc who wants to take over the pub he's part of a family that wants to take over the pub so if the baddie has been killed off guess what it's his brother coming in you know you've got backup plans built in
1: It's certainly easier to write the start of a scenario, no matter whether you're doing location-based or event-based or whatever. It's a lot easier to write the start than it is the end, because you don't know what the end is going to be. So, all I ever have in mind is, if you're writing an adventure, you're not writing a novel. Um, They are very different things. I'm not sure that every adventure writer knows that, because some of them do read, like, here's my story that you will enjoy experiencing. What you're really writing is a story-generating machine in the form of an adventure it'll have multiple endings, it'll have multiple paths, etc. But if you set everything in motion and then give the GM the tools to navigate whatever happens next, you've done a very good job indeed. That's why it's difficult. Mm. Um, And Sandboxes in some ways are easier to write because you're just putting in a lot of starters, whereas linear ones are in some ways more difficult to write, but they do seem to be actually the ones that are mostly out there Mm. because I think there are slightly frustrated novel writers and probably should be doing that. Probably. (laughs)
0: Okay, I think
1: we're just about timed
0: out. So, sorry, a, a very quick question at the back. We'll try and whistle through it. Okay, so there's, there's more adventures than anyone's got time to read. How do you get people to read yours? Quick, fire answers.
3: I've been talking about it on social media, getting friends to talk about it, talking about it on your own podcast, if you have a podcast. <laughs> uh, the, the depressing but honest answer,
2: have awesome artwork. That's it.
1: Put a really good cover on it and tell people that there'll be some good swear words in there and they'll go looking (laughs) for it. Another
0: option is to get reviews, get it in front of people who will talk about it. And uh, run it yourself at conventions. Uh, now I think we've had the we've had the kill it now single signal because we're at the end of the adventure. Time for a TPK. Thanks all for attending. We have the whatwouldthesmartpactdo.com website with our po- you, podcast man. on Great. even I'm trying to speak to you fast now. Listen to the good friends of Jackson Elias and go to Steamforge Games lots of cool stuff. Thanks for attending.